All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Hope and Anchor Church. Today, yes, today, we are continuing in our Imprint 2002 teaching series, our learning adventure through the classical Christian spiritual disciplines. We have made our way over the past 14 weeks, this is week 15, but through the inner, inward disciplines, the outward disciplines, and now we are into the shared disciplines, those which we participate in together. Uh, you may be familiar with spiritual disciplines, but likely you're most familiar with the inward disciplines. Scripture study and meditation, prayer and fasting, right? Uh, then we got into those outward expressions, more like simplicity, solitude, silence, uh, service, submission. Those that were kind of like uh, a little more difficult. Now we're into things like worship and celebration. Uh, things that you might not be as familiar with, but yes, worship is a discipline. Why? Because I guarantee there's been days when you didn't want to worship. You didn't feel like worshiping. But like in this, like so many other areas of life, our feelings are a terrible barometer of the truth. What you feel has very little bearing on what's actually real. Likewise, as a follower of Jesus, I think it's even more important on those days when you don't feel like it to discipline yourself to say, regardless of how I feel, I will worship Jesus. I will train myself to exalt Him because He's worth it. He is far greater than anything I could or could not feel at this moment. So I'll praise Him. So anyway, to talking, to, talking today about worship as a spiritual discipline. As a Christian, as someone who is committed to following after Jesus Christ, did you know, true story, did you know that every single Sunday is a resurrection celebration? Did you know that? We don't talk about Sundays that way, but every Sunday, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating resurrection. Just as we Christians make a really big deal out of Easter, we ought to likewise carry that same sense of celebration with us each time we gather to worship on a Sunday morning. Sunday being the first day of the week, the day on which Jesus rose from the grave, is a weekly reminder, a weekly invitation into this new life, a weekly reminder of that great victory over sin and death. Praise the Lord for that. This becomes that important grounding rhythm that we get to participate in every week. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Every single day, every single week, we get to celebrate. What a blessing it is to gather here today and worship Jesus Christ, the one who came, who died, and who now lives again. This is the day. This is a little Easter of sorts in which we are invited, we are welcome to come and celebrate God's great deliverance of mankind. How great is that? Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has made a way for our transgressions against the Creator to be forgiven. That, my friends, is good news. What Jesus did for us through His finished work on the cross, through His life, death, and resurrection, has made a way for us to be forgiven that great transgression we've made through our disobedience, our rebellion, and our sin against our Creator God. Through Jesus' great sacrifice, He invites us all to come back home, to come back into our place in God's family. Everything Jesus did was substitutionary. Sometimes this can be somehow controversial, like, oh, you know, substitutionary atonement, this and that, whatever. Back up a step. 
Everything Jesus did was substitutionary. Everything he did was in our place, not just his death on the cross. Did you know that? Everything Jesus did was substitutionary. His life, his death, and his resurrection. First, Jesus, who is called in Scripture Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Jesus came and He lived alongside us. He lived the perfect, sinless life among us, the life that we could not live. Why? Because of our disobedience. Because that fallen nature that is coursing in our veins is just in us. We could not, we were unable to, incapable of living that perfect life before God. So Jesus come and, comes and does that in our place. Have you thought about this? The life Jesus lived, those 33 years, were lived perfectly, substitutionarily, in our place. So that His life is pleasing to God in our stead. Which means you don't have to get it all perfect to make God happy with you. Because when you trust in Jesus, He looks at you and says, I see Jesus all over you. And He is worthy. He is perfect. I am satisfied in Him. His blood has covered a multitude of sins in your life, and now you're clothed in His righteousness. How great is that? Man, I just want to like spike my Bible right now. I'm like chicken step a little bit. Yes. All right. Jesus' entire life was pleasing to God, and it was lived in place of your life. Therefore, your salvation is secure. It's secure with God. Why? Because Jesus has imputed His lived-out righteousness upon you. His lived-out righteousness now covers all your weaknesses and all of your failures. So that, His life was, a, was substitutionary. Likewise, Jesus' death. Jesus' death, it atoned... It paid the price for your sins, past, present, and future. I grew up with, this, with an understanding of, uh, of Jesus' atoning death, His forgiving uh, death on the cross, is only forgiving the sins I had committed. I didn't bring His victory into my current life or into my future life. But how scandalous is this? That Jesus' death on the cross forgave all your sins, past, present, and future. There's little mushroom clouds over some people's heads right now, like, what? How can this be? How can grace be that amazing? How great is that? He forgives our sins, past, present, future. Jesus took the guilt and shame of our sins upon Himself and died upon a cross in our place, gathering His perfect life together and offering it to God in His perfect death. In this, Jesus atoned for me, he atoned for you, and He atoned for all who have placed their faith in Him. As He hung on the cross, guys, He got what we had coming to us. Knowing that, He took it all and said, it's worth it. And then it, as He died, He said, it's finished. The work is accomplished. Tetelestai, that's the word He said. It's like, it's accomplished, it's finished, it's done. All that was necessary is done. Now... Amazing to me. He got what we had coming. In His death, Jesus endured God's wrath on sin so that we could be shown His mercy. This is what justice demanded. Justice demands that things be set to right. It was necessary, if we were ever to come back to God, that things had to be set right. And Jesus accomplished that. To tell us die. It is finished. It is accomplished. 
Sin, by its very nature, leads to suffering. Uh, the wages of sin is what? Death, right? The, the, the paycheck you're going to get at the long end of a life filled with sin is a paycheck that says death. That's not a paycheck I want. No, but Jesus gathered up all the paychecks and said, I'll take them. I'll take them. I'll, I'll cash these. <laughs> I didn't have that in my notes. I'm not sure that makes sense. But the wages of sin is death. Thus, God in His goodness and His justice, He satisfied sin's penalty in Jesus. And Jesus, guess what? He gladly received in Himself that penalty out of love for us. And it wasn't easy. You remember the scene maybe in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is crying out like if there's any other way. Jesus knowing what was, what was coming, what He would have to endure to make this possible. It was a heavy burden. It's like, Father, if there's any other way, please let this cup of, of suffering pass from me. But not my will, but your will. Your will. I want what you want. Out of love for us, he received the penalty unto himself. So then finally, in his resurrection, Jesus arose in the first morning of the new creation. And the scriptures say that he was the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Who's the brothers and sisters, guys? It's us. Those who believe in Christ will follow him into that. He's the pioneer, the trailblazer. He, through his substitutionary life, death, and then resurrection, opened up a way for us to have access to the Father and to be brought back home and to find our place in the new creation. In the light of that new dawn, Jesus leads all who believe in him into the reward of their salvation, which is new life, full and free, lived out with God, our maker. So it comes full circle, all in Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. I love what Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11 uh, says, how it kind of captures this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So, now, Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Do you ever read a passage of Scripture and you're like, is that new? I don't think I've ever heard that before. That's the feeling I get when I read this passage. It's like, what? That's beautiful. I'm so glad I heard that today. Uh, that's the neat thing about Scripture. You might read it or listen to it a hundred times, but then parts of it just jump out and capture your attention. It's like, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his sister. How amazing is this? He's glad to lead you into glory. He's glad to lead you into the presence of the Father and say, Look, look at him. Look at her. Father, meet your son. Father, meet your daughter. <laughs> it's like high fives. Yes. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. 
All who believe in our risen King Jesus are joyfully, not reluctantly, joyfully invited into new life, welcomed into the new heaven and the new earth by faith alone in the resurrected Christ. Hallelujah. I said a lot already. I could just close up shop right now and it would be like doing Jericho marches around in here. Right? Those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart, they are saved. They are saved. Now, what does that mean? What does salvation mean? Salvation is, is true in two senses, in two ways. Salvation is being saved both from something and saved to something. Okay, have you thought about it this way? Most of you have been taught like, hey, get saved so you don't sizzle like a piece of sausage in hell. Right? We get that. You're like, oh, oh don't want that. But we're also being saved for something, to something. Okay, we're being saved... Uh, yes, we are being saved to escape God's wrath upon sin, but salvation is also uh, saving us to something. It's saving us to a life made new, a life made whole, uh, being saved to uh, fully being alive, redeemed, and reconciled to God. Taken together, that's the message of the gospel. It's invitation. It's welcome. It's so that... Believe in Jesus so that. Oftentimes the church is trafficked in or else language. Have you ever run into that? It's like, believe in Jesus or else. I mean, that's an effective tool. Show of hands, how many people were saved because you had the H-E double hockey stick scared out of you? Right? I mean, it's like you were scared of hell. I got saved, I think, on a day. My parents are here. They can corroborate this. Our church did a musical cantata about hell. Who does this? There were people being dragged across stage, like thrown into this big fiery furnace thing. <laughs> so I was like low-hanging fruit for the pastor. I mean, at the, I'm like a teenager. I was like I was 12, and the pastor comes up. I was like, all right, who, who, wants to who wants to get saved and believe in Jesus and, and not go into that thing? <laughs> it's like, well, I don't. <laughs> I choose non-smoking, please. You know, I, I was easy. I was low-hanging fruit. But that's really to miss the real thrust in the heart of the gospel is to be saved so that you can come home, so that you can be reconciled, so that you can have new, abundant, full life. The wreckage and the doom of our disobedience in the Garden of Eden is now undone. Guys, in Jesus, all the sad things are coming untrue. All the sad things. All creation resounds with God's glory revealed in our risen King Jesus through His victorious, substitutionary life, death, and resurrection. And today, what are we doing? Today, we have a chance to show our gratitude. We have a chance to worship with all the faithful around the globe and throughout history we get to worship Jesus. That's what we get to do today. So worship. What is worship? How do you define worship? Is worship an activity? Or is worship an attitude? Well, maybe it's both, right? Uh, who worships? Why worship? Why do we worship at all? Well, here's our portable uh, definition of worship. Worship is to know, to love, and embrace the resurrected Christ in faithful community. Worship is to know, love, and embrace the resurrected Christ in faithful community. 
Donald Whitney says our worship, both individually and together, is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of, its, of His worth. Positioning ourselves to just reflect back to Him something that originates in Him, the glory of His worth. We're like the moon to the sun. We're like our bicycle reflector to a headlight. I mean, we're just like, oh, find our place to just reflect it all back to Him. You're worthy. The glory of His worth. The radiance of His worth. The Greek word for worship, does anyone know? Any? The Greek word for worship is proskneu. Proskneu. I might be butchering that. Proskneu. Does anyone know what proskneu means? Lean toward to kiss. Some of the guys in here are kind of like, what? <laughs> That's kind of weird. To lean toward to kiss. In worshiping Jesus, just come to terms with it. In worshiping Jesus, we are leaning toward to kiss our Savior and our Lord. That seems pretty intimate. That seems pretty up close and personal. What we're doing when we worship is we're leaning toward to kiss Jesus. We're leaning toward to kiss our Savior and our Lord. Is this how you perceive your worship? Um, is this what you are doing today? Do you imagine yourself? Are you comfortable with the fact that you, are, you have opportunity today to lean toward to kiss our Savior's face? Our worship Worship should indeed bear that intimate sense of leaning toward to kiss God as we love and adore Jesus Christ, our risen King. To lean toward to kiss. Now, lest we fall into this, uh, this sense of intimacy without the requisite sense of reverence and holy fear, let us go to Scripture to get a more balanced understanding of what we're dealing with here. There is a requisite interplay with worship, that intimacy, with obedience. Worship and obedience work together. Isaiah 6, 8, remember that story where Isaiah has the vision of God's glory filling the temple? The angel he cries out, woe is me. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips, and I live among unclean people. And an angel grabs a hot coal, flies, touches his lips like your, your sins have been purified. And then he hears the one on the throne say, who will go for us? Who can we send? And what is Isaiah's response? Do you remember in Isaiah 6, 8? Here am I. Here am I. Send me. In this moment where he recognized God's glorious radiance, he falls down and says, I'm undone, I'm unmade, I'm doomed. And he says, no, you're, you're forgiven. Who will go for us? And his response is like, oh, me. Send me, I'll go. I'll go, here am I, send me. Richard Foster explains, holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate. What does that mean? Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate. Something to just make us feel good. Something to just numb the pain or something to just uh, do something for us. Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate, an escape from the pressing needs of modern life. Get this, worship enables us to hear the call to service clearly so that we can respond, here am I. Send me. Something that happens in worship ought to motivate us that as we hit that door on the way out, we're like, I'm being sent. I'm being sent in obedience to make this real where I live, among the people that I live among, to see God's the radiance 
the radiance of his worth celebrated with me as I go. The integrated symbiotic nature of worship and obedience creates the necessary condition and context which God desires most. God, and we're going to talk about this, God doesn't desire your worship if you're not going to also offer him your obedience. I mean, he would say, just keep it. I don't need it. <laughs> I don't need it. I don't need your worship if you're not going to obey. When my kids were babies, <laughs> they probably don't remember this, probably don't want to remember this, actually. Uh, we would occasionally take them to the chiropractor for an adjustment. You know, who, I don't know. We're, we do that, I guess. But do you know how a chiropractor, how a chiropractor adjusts a baby? <laughs> it's the weirdest thing you've ever seen. They, to adjust a newborn or an infant, they, the easiest way to adjust and align their spine is to gently hold them upside down by their ankles and just slightly wiggle. Uh, sometimes they cried. Sometimes they looked at us like we had just betrayed them. <laughs> like, what? what have I done to you? But wh why did they do this? Well, this allowed the gravity of the earth to pull the vertebrae into alignment with the earth gently because babies' heads are like disproportionately large and heavy. So holding them upside down and kind of wiggling, kind of aligned any kind of subluxations or misalignments, just kind of drew it into alignment by holding them upside down in line with the earth's gravity. While the child was bewildered and unhappy, they did feel better afterwards, right? Right? You don't remember that part either? All right. They acted like they felt better. But here's the thing. Like a chiropractor adjusting an infant... A you know, holding them upside down and gently wiggling them by the ankles. <laughs> a certain position and a, and a particular action, it caused a predictable response and reaction in the body. Once in that proper position, everything fell into proper alignment. Everything found its right position. Uh, Foster describes it this way, Just as worship begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. If the fruit, if the, what's produced from your worship is not a deeper sense and motivation for obedience, it's been just an emotional experience. It's just been therapy for you. <laughs> Unless your worship is, is motivating obedience, it's not been worship. Is that hard to hear? I mean, is that, is that difficult? I mean, I think we understand it, but it can be really kind of convicting sometimes. Here's the thing. Position yourself rightly in worship and obedience results, and vice versa. Position yourself rightly in obedience, and guess what results? Worship. So this is important because herein lies a great danger, maybe one of the great dangers of the Christian life. Worship without obedience leads to what? Hypocrisy. Worship without obedience leads to hypocrisy. And similarly, obedience without worship leads to legalism. Two good words that everyone wants to sign up for, right? Hypocrisy, legalism. Who wants some hypocrisy? Who wants some legalism? We've got a list up here if you want to sign up, right? Worship without obedience equals hypocrisy. Obedience without worship equals legalism. And guess what? Hypocrisy and legalism always lead to deception and dead religion. Every time. 
Every time, look through the pages of Scripture, look through the pages of your own life. Every time, hypocrisy and legalism always lead to deception and dead religion. Disconnection between worship and obedience, it leads to religious behavior without corresponding godliness, which will never be acceptable to God. When we unhitch the two from each other, worship and obedience, we offer something to God that He will never accept. He'll never accept. In fact, God actually despises it. He's not just like, oh, no thank you. <laughs> no thanks. He's like, oh, gross. Get that out of here. Slam. That's it. That's, it. That's how it is. Look at, uh, God actually despises both hypocrisy and legalism. Look at Isaiah 29, 13. 29, 13. And so the Lord says, These people, they say they are mine, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. He sees it. He's like, hey, they're saying a bunch of nice stuff, but their heart is so far from me. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 15, 22. 1 Samuel 15, oh dear, where are we here? We've got so many scriptures. Hope your Bible's warmed up because we're, we're flipping around today. 1 Samuel 15, 22 through the first part of 23. But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord? This is after Saul like disobeyed. He did, did what he was told not to do. And Samuel's calling him out on it. He says, Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to His voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness is bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, He has rejected you as king, Saul. Look at one more, Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. This is pretty searing here. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and turn left. Malachi 1, 6-14. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, A son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where is the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we ever, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled the, the sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all, asks the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would just shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. But my name is honored by people of other nations from morning until night. All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in, my, in honor of my name. For my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of, Lord of heaven's armies. But you, you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you are saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say, it's too hard to serve the Lord, and you turn up your noses at my commands, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. 
Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these? asked the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from the flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. You see what's going on here? It's like God doesn't want our worthless stuff. God doesn't want our half-hearted leftovers. He wants our best. And how do we give Him our best? We come to worship with a heart of obedience. God clearly desires obedience. He desires offerings given by faithful living. God despises disobedience. He hates false worship. He hates seeing us just go through the motions. It's, a, it's offensive. It's annoying when we offer blind and crippled animals and say they are our best. When it's not our best. We're giving Him uh, our leftover, half-hearted leftovers. We're just play-acting, and God sees right through it. Seeking to worship God without a willingness to obey is sadly epidemic, though. It's not just you. It's epidemic in the church. We feel compelled. We feel like we're doing our part by just going through the motions. We must do better, guys. We can decide today that we will do better. Even if it means we do less, but we, what that little bit we do is true, I think that's a better starting point. Build from there. We must do better. Worship and obedience. They must learn to walk hand in hand. Worship and obedience. Now, worship, I think all this maybe sets the stage then for understanding that worship is a spiritual discipline. Worship is a spiritual discipline because we must learn to be true to our word. We must uh, order our affections. We must live out faithfully and humbly that which we express in worship. We should never be singing words to songs that are lies. Right? We should critique ourselves. We should catch ourselves. Hey, I'm singing songs that are saying things about me and about Jesus that really aren't true. I need to get my life in alignment at least with the words I'm singing. I need to believe this enough that it transforms how I'm living. Foster uh, goes on to say, One reason worship should be considered a spiritual discipline is because it is an ordered way of acting and living that does what? It sets us before God so that He can transform us. Worship helps us enter into and be present for the transformation that God desires to do in our lives. Donald Whitney piles on and, by, and says, To worship God in spirit is to worship from the inside out. It means to be sincere in our acts of worship. We are to worship according to truth, the truth of Scripture. We worship God as He is revealed in the Bible, not as we might want Him to be. Okay, we look to Scripture as where God has revealed Himself most evidently uh, to us here today, and we say, okay, this will calibrate, this will align me so that I'm worshiping God as He is revealed, not how I want Him to be. Uh, you remember the story in John chapter 4 of Jesus talking to the, uh, the woman at, at Jacob's well. Uh, let's see, John chapter 4, verses 21 through 26. Here he, he really unveils a, an important teaching in saying that God is seeking. God is seeking what? He is seeking worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, let's look at that, 4.21-26. through 26, Jesus replied to the woman, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where you worship the Father, uh, whether you worship Him on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about Him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming 
Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship Him in that way. Did you hear that? Have you thought about this? God is seeking. God is looking for you. God is looking for you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. More and more, day by day, able to worship Him more and more rightly as He is. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. He is looking for you. He desires you to embrace Him with a sincere heart in the full light of His revelation in Jesus Christ through His life, His death, and His resurrection. God is seeking you out calling you in, inviting you, drawing you in so that you might worship Him rightly and well in spirit and in truth. So, as we finish up, I want to give you uh, how to worship God in six easy steps. Easy enough, right? This is from the Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. But how to worship in six easy steps, right? We're Americans. We love this stuff. Number one, learn to practice the presence of God. Learn to practice the presence of God. What does this mean? It means engage in ongoing personal times of worship, confession, Bible study and meditation, and attentiveness to Christ. This happens every day, not just on Sundays. If you're only turning your attention to God, worshiping Him on Sundays, you're missing out. You're missing out on what God desires for you daily. Remember we talked about that one Sunday about having quiet hours? That daily time in the Word and in prayer, but then also those sanctuary moments? Those unexpected times that come where you could be otherwise frustrated, standing in line, waiting in traffic, whatever, when you can say, oh, great, an opportunity to enter into the sanctuary and sit with the presence of God. Seeking these out day by day. Doing this will heighten and enrich your expectancy when you arrive in corporate worship, when we gather on Sundays, because it, this is a continuation and in some ways an intensification of that which you have been doing and enjoying all week long. Does that make sense? How powerful would this time be if all of us have been worshiping Jesus all week long and when we come together, this is just a grand crescendo of worship. How awesome would that be? Richard Foster says, Seek to punctuate every moment with inward whisperings of adoration, praise, and thanksgiving. Guys, this is what I think it means when Paul says, Pray without ceasing. We're always attentive. We're always ready to jump into a moment and say, Yes, I can praise God right now. I can worship right now. In this moment, I can offer up my frustration, my, my stifled will to Jesus and see it transformed into worship. I'll do that. Every morning before my heat, feet hit the floor, I will spend time in the Word and in prayer as worship. I will pray without ceasing today. So, first one was I'll learn to practice the presence of God. Number two, seek variety and different experiences and expressions in worship. Guys, as good as worship is here at Hope and Anchor, it's not the best. There's other expressions, there's other modes of worshiping that you need to be familiar with. This isn't the only way to worship God. You can worship God in a, in a multitude of other ways, so seek them out. This adds freshness and new perspective to what worship is and what it means in your walk with Jesus. It also lends power and vitality to your personal times of worship and our corporate, our together times of worship. And it more faithfully resembles what worship looks like around the world and what worship will look like in eternity. Will this kind of be like what worship is in eternity? Maybe. Sometimes. 
But worship is going to be a whole life, whole living experience. It's going to be multifaceted and vari uh, have various forms. So seek variety in different experiences and expressions in worship. Number three, make preparation for worship a priority during the week. Make preparation for worship a priority during the week. Spend time on Saturday as well as every day, but per particularly on Saturday, spend time in self-examination, in confession, and listening. Gather Gather yourself and then gather early on Sunday to fill this sanctuary with prayer, inviting the presence of God to attend. How great would that be if we all were able to show up physically or just spiritually and bathe this place in prayer? That this would be a sanctuary that is prepared for God to visit with us. How great would that be? So make preparation for worship a priority during the week. Number four, surrender to God and to the agenda of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what does this require of us? It requires us to let go of some things. Let go of our preferences, of our assumptions, and of our agendas. To come in with open hands. Say, I'm, I'm giving it to you and I'm ready to receive. Gather in one accord, in one body. Uh, seek to share one mind, the mind of Christ. We have one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's Him under whom we gather today. So surrender to God and the agenda of the Holy Spirit. Number five, cultivate holy dependency. Cultivate holy dependency. Realize this. We are reliant upon God for anything meaningful that can happen in worship. We can't make anything happen. I mean, we can burn the sacrifices. We can sing the songs. We can do say all the things. But unless God acts, we're doing it in vain. We are reliant on God for anything meaningful to happen in worship. Learn to look forward to God moving, to teaching, to wooing, and to winning us today. The culmination and the fruition of true worship is God's work and not ours. How hard is that to understand? That we're just showing up to reflect something that God is offering to us. Huh. The culmination and fruition of true worship is God's work, not ours. And number six, decide to offer a sacrifice of worship. Decide to offer a sacrifice of worship. This is what we talked about at the beginning. Oftentimes you will not feel like worshiping. Oftentimes you won't sense God's presence. And so many times I hear people say, like, I don't even know, I don't even feel like praying. Because I feel like God's not even listening. I don't feel God's presence at all. Well, that shouldn't be the reason why we do or don't pray. That God feels close or that we feel like He's listening. No, we have to choose to push through that. Say, I'll do it anyway. I'll do it anyway. I'll pray. I'll worship anyway. Uh, say these words as your prayer even. Lord, I don't feel like worshiping today, but I'll do it anyway. Can you pray that? Lord, I don't feel like worshiping today, but I will anyway. I will choose to. My day belongs to you. I choose as an act of the will to train my spirit and spend this time with you. Okay, my homework for you today is to spend time in meditation on Psalm 103. You can write this down, but Psalm 103, because there's an important passage in there where, where the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. All that is in me, praise His holy name. He's directing Himself 
to worship. I, I never heard this that way until I, so I was reading something that told me about this. If you read the language here, he is commanding himself to do something. It's like he's standing there pointing at himself. <laughs> Isn't it weird, right? He's like, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that's in there. Praise his holy name. What if we said that to ourselves? All that is in me, God, I'm offering that to you in praise. I will bless the Lord with my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. I will do it even when, especially when I don't feel like it. So Psalm 103, can you spend time in that this week? Psalm 103. Psalm what? Yeah. All right. May the psalmist guide us into faithful, obedient worship of our God. And may we gladly discover what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And then may we worship God as we together and individually lean toward to kiss our resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for a chance, an invitation to hear clearly again what you desire in worship and what's on offer to us when we worship. That we can be in your presence. That we can reflect the radiance of your worth and glory back to you. God, I pray that you would uh, set that in our hearts. That we'd have a corrected understanding of what worship truly is. And what our responsibility is in that when we worship. To ground it in obedience. God, may worship and obedience learn to walk hand in hand more gracefully in us today. God, may this be a worshiping place filled with a worshiping people that bring together the fruits of their personal worship to offer a sacrifice to you every Sunday when we gather. God, that this wouldn't be an empty form, an, an, an empty noise, the kind of sacrifice you'd reject because of hypocrisy or legalism. Lord, do a transformative work in our heart. Start wherever you need to start in us. God, may our worship be centered in the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, fueled by gratitude, because we are more and more understanding the value and worth of His life, His death, and His resurrection, His substitutionary atonement for us, that through His righteousness, we can be forgiven. Through His, His atonement, we can be brought back into right relationship with You. God, strengthen our faith so that we can become more and more worshiping people. God, I pray for my friends here who've been following Jesus that maybe had a thin or inadequate understanding of what worship's about or why we worship at all. Maybe they've equated worship with a Sunday morning time and place, <laughs> but it's so much more than that. It is indeed that which we will be doing from now into eternity. And every day we'll be overwhelmed with a sense of your worthiness. Oh, you are worthy, worthy, worthy to receive all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. So drive that deeply into our hearts. May we become truly more and more a worshiping people. I pray for my friends here who've never followed Jesus. I pray they'd hear the glory and the goodness of the gospel. That Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he paid the price for your sin, and he's welcoming you back into the family of the Father. And it begins by faith, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're entering into the salvation life. You're saved, you're welcomed, you're given uh, uh, new life in Christ. So God, I pray for my friends that might be just now turning to Jesus, turning from their old life of sin, turning to the new life in Him and saying, yes, thank you, thank you. So God, as we worship and as we pray, may your presence fill this place, bring conviction, bring joy. Whatever it is you need to do, God, we are willing. 
we will submit and we will follow as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to sing another song together, but before we do, we're going to take another minute of just quiet. Sit with the Lord. Have that conversation maybe you've been meaning to have but have not gotten to it. Maybe that's the first time you've actually uh, interacted with the Lord all week long. This can be a personal time of worship for you. So make the most of this opportunity. If you want to pray, I'll be back there. Otherwise, sit here. The Lord is here. He's ready and He's listening. So uh, make the most of this opportunity.